Our text this evening is the 10th Psalm. So I invite you to turn back there with me if you would. Before we begin, there's a a portion of scripture history that I think we can often overlook, but one that we ought to keep in front of us as we come before the word of God, especially in a corporate setting week after week. You remember, of course, the account when Jonathan breaks through after his father, King Saul, had forbidden them to eat anything of the land. And Jonathan ate of the honey that he found there on the ground. And the scriptures simply say to us that his eyes were lightened. You know, friend, as you and I come before the word of God um, in a context such as this this evening, that, that should be our earnest prayer. That this word would be like that honey and that our eyes indeed would be enlightened. Because we need that. And the word of God, the entirety of it, and our text this evening, of course, is calculated to do just that, as the Spirit of God would take it up and apply it to our hearts. It should be our prayer that, like Jonathan, our eyes would be enlightened. The Psalter brings to us reality. And, friend, it does so, as I've said to you many times, through contrast, taking opposite things and setting them in front of us so that we can see what really is in front of us. Uh, what is in the present and also what is to come. And our psalm this evening is a representative case. This is a psalm of contrast. And as we read the text, you perhaps can see the contrast, the most obvious being uh, that of oppressor versus the oppressed. That there is a difference clearly in the Psalter between those who have been victimized and those who are their persecutors. But as we take up this 10th psalm, I want you to note that that friend, the contrast that's in this text is actually quite staggering, and it's even more specific than just oppressed and oppressor. For that, it's perhaps important for us to remember what's gone before in the ninth psalm. These two psalms, Psalms 9 and 10, are actually very much supposed to be read together. If you're looking at these two psalms in the Hebrew text, you'll notice that every second line begins with the next or consecutive line of the alphabet. In other words, Psalms 9 and 10 form for us an entire alphabetic psalm, or one alphabetic composition in two, two distinct sections. These two psalms are supposed to be meditated upon together. And as we do so, what do we find? Well, we notice, first of all, that their themes are very similar. If you look at Psalm 9, the 15th verse, you read these words, the heathen are sunk down in the pit that they've made. Verse 2 of the 10th Psalm, we read, let them be taken in the devices they have imagined. Thematically, the two ideas are synonymous. If you look at the last verse of the 9th Psalm, the psalmist prays, put them in fear that the nations may know themselves to be but men. If you look at the last verse of our 10th Psalm, you find the words, the prayer that the men of the earth may no more oppress. In both cases, the psalmist urges God to act to remind men of their earthliness, to remind men of their finitude and their creatureliness. And so these two psalms are to be read together. They're joined together structurally and they're joined together thematically. But I want you to notice that that observation helps us understand the contrast in this 10th psalm even better. Because what you find as we hold these two texts together is that we're not here looking at that general contrast between the oppressed and the oppressor. 
In other words, we're not looking at all of those in the history of the world who, who could be described as being victimized, as opposed to their persecutors. No, the psalmist in both of these psalms is very clear. He is dealing with oppressed, but specifically those whom he describes in the 10th verse of Psalm 9 as those that know thy name, them that seek thee, those who are humble and they cry unto God, 9.12. In verse 14 of the 10th Psalm, you find that these poor are those who commit themselves to the Lord. Furthermore, in verse 17, we're told that the Lord will prepare, that has established their heart, and thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. There, giving the clear impression that these ones are those who are crying out to God. Friend, what you find here then is that the contrast is not between just generally those who are oppressed and their persecutors. The psalmist is very clear in both 9 and 10 to draw our attention specifically to the godly oppressed, to the people of God who are here persecuted. And and so, as he takes up in this 10th psalm the image of the widow and of the orphan, the reason why he does that is quite palpable. He draws upon those of God's people who are weakest in the eyes of the world, those whom the world so easily preys upon. And here in this 10th psalm, then, you have this idea that he's looking at the church of God, and he's looking even at the weakest in the visible church, and he's pleading with God against their persecutors. This is not generally oppressed versus the oppressor. This is the godly weak against their persecutors. But as we keep that contrast in front of us, it's important to see that that contrast really centers on a single theme. And that theme is given to us toward the end of our text. It's in verse 16. Where there the Lord is said, is said thus, he says, the Lord is king forever and ever. Now, friend, as you look at this 10th Psalm, you'll notice that in point of fact, this is the, the very nexus, the, the, very, the very point of focus for every aspect of the psalm. It's central, first of all, because in verses 1 and 14 to 18, it is the reality of, of God's kingship. That is, he is rightful king and so just judge that he prays, pleads for God to stand and to do that which is lawfully in his hand to do, which is in his power to do. But it's also, as you'll notice in verses 4 to 5 and 11 to 13, also this is the focus of the ungodly. This kingship and this just judgment which God will execute is the very thing that is spurned by the church's persecutors. A friend, if we hold all of that together, I think we can even come to a contrast that's somewhat more specific. Yes, you have those who are the persecutors of God's people, very clearly set before us in this 10th Psalm. We'll see that in a moment. But there is another figure that emerges, and it's perhaps the most subtle, but one of the most important. The contrast is not just between the church and her persecutors, but in this Psalm you have something of a contrast between the church's enemies, and the psalmist himself. 
Because in this psalm what you find is the man of God pours out his heart. He is the one who is active in this psalm. In this psalm you'll notice that the humble, the the oppressed, the persecuted are principally those who who are very weak and so are not doing much. They are crying out to God, but but in this psalm you find that it's the psalmist himself that is most active. As we find expressly his prayer to God on their behalf. And that's important perhaps most for our purposes this evening because this shows us a normative picture of how the Christian is supposed to pray and so how a Christian is supposed to think about these themes. This contrast between the persecutors and the psalmist is really, for you and for me this evening, supposed to be a clear picture of what you and I must be following the example of the psalmist. As we look at all of the oppression and all of the opposition to the church that we see around us. Our theme this evening then, quite straightforward from the 16th verse, is that God's judgment is spurned by his enemies and craved by his people. God's judgment is spurned by his enemies and craved by his people. And very briefly this evening, I I want us simply to look at this as the psalmist presents these two kinds of people before us. I want us to take up, first of all, the wicked. Those who are the persecutors of the church. And in the third verse, he describes them for us Quite, quite distinctly. In verse 3 you'll find the words, The wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. Now you may have a marginal reading on that third verse, and, and the marginal reading far more closely aligns itself with the original. That reading would be that the covetous blesseth himself and abhorreth the Lord. What you see in this third verse then is something of a compendium. A very brief, but, but, quite, but, but quite comprehensive description of the heart of God's enemies. They bless themselves, these men who are covetous. Meanwhile, they abhor the Lord. The wicked are thus anatomized. We give it a picture of their heart. But what I want you to notice here is the word abhor there. We shouldn't be misled by colloquial uses of that that word. The word abhor there really doesn't mean absolute intentional hatred, as we often use it in the 21st century. It means more in its original as to disregard, ignore, or spurn someone. You see the idea. The idea here is that the the, the ungodly, rather, are those who simply put God out of mind. They disregard him. They ignore him. And as much as it is possible for them, they suppress his knowledge. Now the psalmist presents this to us, not only in the third verse, but as you work your way through this tenth psalm, he shows us by degrees how the wicked man does this. The first degree is given to us in verse 4, where he says, he will not seek the Lord, or, or even more accurately, he will not call upon the Lord. And the sense is the first thing the psalmist observes about the ungodly are is that in adversity they do not call out unto God. Why? Well, that brings us to the, that brings us, they are so filled with pride and so self-reliant that they find no need for him. The second degree that he presents to us here is also in the fourth verse, where he says that God is not in all his thoughts. 
Now friend, these first two points, these first two degrees that we see in the wicked, friend, they, they could seem rather negligible. Because they don't seem to be evidences, at least from a human perspective, of outright hatred. The man is simply disregarding God. He will not call upon him in trouble. And furthermore, he does not allow God to, as it were, reign in his mind. When you come to the third degree, what you find there in verses 5 to 6 are this. God's judgments are far above out of his sight. In other words, even in front of him, when God is working in his providence to demonstrate his justice and and to demonstrate the futility of sin, and even in his providences to call men to repentance, this wicked man looks at all of that and he says, these things will never touch me. And then he goes on to say, I shall not be moved. He describes himself as one in perfect security, one who will never be touched by the judgment of God. And then in the fourth degree, what you have there in verse 11 is, God hath forgotten. You will never see. And at this moment, friend, you and I get a wonderful picture, a terrifying picture in the human heart. Because as the psalmist describes this man for us, he describes him as a man who sees all of these things, who must acknowledge that there is a God in heaven, but who tells himself in the midst of his sin, God does not see, he does not care. There is a God in heaven, but he has nothing to do with my sin. He will not deal with me according to my wickedness. Then in the fifth and the final degree in verse 13, you have these words. The psalmist says that he contemns God. And he says, thou wilt not require it. Again, this idea is is one of palpable, of palpable atheism. What I want you to notice here, first of all, the word contemn in our translations is exactly the same Hebrew word as what you had in verse 3. It's the word translated abhor there. It's the same idea as spurning. What you see here, friend, is that the psalmist presents to us a picture of the wicked so as to give us a view of his principles upon which he acts. This is how the enemy of God's people think. This is how the enemy of God, how he reasons, so as to continue in his wickedness. What you see here then, friend, is that divine judgment is spurned to enable self-serving. I want you to notice again in verse 3, the root here of the wicked man is that he regards himself and his own interests. He's a covetous man, and he blesses himself and all that is his while he spurns or abhors the Lord. There's the wicked for you, friend, in, in a very concise way. That is the ungodly man described for us. He exalts himself And he spurns God. As I said to you, it's a very concise but very fulsome description of the the ungodly. These are God's enemies. And I want you to notice, friend, how realistically they're described. As we read this 10th Psalm, you may imagine the wicked man as being some kind of overt pagan. 
gathered together around a pentagram saying things in blasphemy and overt say overt blasphemies and seances. That's not the ungodly man in view here. No, friend, it's very much more subtle. These are those who simply exalt themselves, and in doing so, they abhor God and are so certainly the enemies of God. It's a very realistic picture of the persecutors of God's people because it shows us principally, friend, that their modus operandi is always to secure the best things for themselves and only, only to pursue their own interests. And what we're told in this 10th Psalm is that all of this is facilitated by a practical atheism. I mean, practical rather than theoretical in the sense that the psalmist here describes the ungodly man as knowing that there is a God. He's not a theoretical atheist saying that he denies the existence of God. He can't do that. But he is a practical atheist. He does all that he can to put God and his truth out of his mind. He distorts the truth that he even has in front of him in providence, and he does all that he can to keep God, as it were, from his thoughts. And friend, what you and I are supposed to see here is that that enables his self-serving. That is a principle upon which now he can, he can, as it were, energize all of his wickedness. What you and I have then as we see these verses describing the wicked man is really the root. The root of the ungodly. Put very positively, friend, the ungodly are simply those who are self-seeking. They are the covetous. They are those who pursue their own interests at all costs. Friend, if you look at verses 7 to 10, as we find that very real description of their oppression, the psalmist would have us remember that all of those, those terrible deeds, those are simply the fruits of this self-serving principle. All of these things are executed because they are covetous. Because they bless themselves and they spurn God. Friend, what you and I are supposed to see in this text, and as a pastor, I think it's my obligation to apply it this way, is that you and I are supposed to see the human heart. And you and I are supposed to see the great wickedness of selfishness. And when you and I put our interests over God's, this is describing that principle. And even if you and I can say, well, we never, we were never those, as as we're described here, who who layeth and wait secretly as a lion in his den. We we never murder the poor. Well, friend, in point, in, in front of men, certainly that might be the case. But in for Odai, in the face of God, Friend, your selfishness and mine has all of that capability. And if we don't know it, and other men don't see it, God knows. Friend, and God sees the wickedness of selfishness. And he's described it for us in this 10th Psalm. So the question you and I have to ask is one certainly of self-examination. Friend, do we see the heinousness of selfishness itself, of pursuing our own interests over God's? My friend, as we leave the wicked, we come to look at the godly. 
And I want us to close our meditations on this psalm by, by focusing on him. To all, to all of what has gone before, you find in verse 12, the psalmist says thus, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. And then if you come down to verse 14, he says, Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest mischief in spite to requite it with thy hand. Now for what you notice here in these verses is that the psalmist is flatly contradicting the principles of the practical atheist. He is flatly contradicting the claims that the atheist makes to his own heart in verses 11, sorry, in verses 11 and 13. And friend, this is so very important for our purposes this evening. Because what you see here in the psalmist is that the psalmist looks at providence in a way that is utterly different than the ungodly. The ungodly say in their hearts that God's judgments will never touch them. They say in their hearts that God, as it were, is aloof. He will never judge the wicked. That these things will not be required from him in the final judgment. The the ungodly think thus, but the godly... To all of that atheism, the godly say, Arise, O God, and do that which is in your hand and which you will execute in time to come. The contrast, friend, couldn't be starker. As you look at verse 16, you'll notice that the psalmist here is looking by faith at present promises, sorry, at present circumstances and at future blessings that have been promised. In verse 16, we read the words that the Lord is king forever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Verse 17, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the poor. That's a present reality, but then note this. Thou wilt prepare or establish their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. And friend, this is why it's so important for us, I believe, to see the psalmist as being a central figure to our meditation. Because he is patterning for us how the godly are supposed to think. Unlike the wicked, they are supposed to look at God's judgments and say, this is God exercising his rule that is doing all the work of a just judge. When he sees the wicked and their devices brought low, he says, that is the hand of God. Whenever he hears the cries of the church, he's confident that they are heard. And that God will indeed answer. What you see here, friend, is again the exact opposite of the wicked man previously described. But not only do we see an expression of his faith, we see in verse 18 something of his desire. His cry is that man of earth may no more oppress. Friend, this is the godly man as he goes to the throne of grace. And this is his desire. What we find in this section of the psalm then is that the divine judgment is desired by the godly and for God's glory. I want you to notice the psalmist is not a merciless man as he prays for the destruction of the wicked here. And it's certainly not a contradiction at all of Christ's command for us to pray for our enemies. It's very much more what you have exampled for us in Revelation 18. 
Where there the Lord says to heaven, Rejoice over her, that is Babylon that has fallen. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. That's the spirit of this prayer. He is there acquiescing in God's justice and delighting in God's faithfulness as he protects, avenges his people. And I want you to notice, friend, that the psalmist prays this in a way that's not selfish. If you look back to the 13th verse, there's a question there that we could quickly overlook, but it's central to this desire. The psalmist almost, almost at a point of of utter perplexity asks, why doth the wicked condemn God? You see, friend, what's central to this desire is that the psalmist longs for that moment when God will vindicate his own name. When the spurning of the wicked is brought to an end and God and God only is exalted. And every knee shall bow. And so, friend, what you have here is a pattern for you and for me as well. This ought to be our desire too. An example of this, I think, that we could, could meditate on for a lot, a greater length, but we don't have time this evening, is that of Elijah. You remember in the last chapter of James' epistle, he tells us that Elijah prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. That's James 5.17. Why did Elijah pray for the heavens to be stopped? Uh, Friend, I would submit to you that some people might say that that's quite a merciless prayer. To pray for his own countrymen to be faced with famine and death. And to pray that God would bring that to pass. I think for most evangelicals that's hard to quantify. But if you compare that prayer, friend, to what you have, for instance, in Deuteronomy 11. Where God had promised that in the event of Israel's defection, God would make the heavens as bronze. Well, Then you start to understand a bit more, I believe, why Elijah prayed as he did. You see, God had promised that he would visit iniquity with his chastisements. And the ungodly, living in a period of forbearance, took for granted that mercy, that God had withheld that chastisement that he had promised centuries before. So Elijah prays for the glory of God, for the staving of iniquity, that God would chastise sin. Friend, that's the kind of desire that you have in the psalm. In Elijah, you and I have an example. Staggering of what you and I ought to be doing today. As we close our meditations this evening, friend, we ought to see in this text, there is a glorious picture of God's justice, but even a glorious picture, of course, of the final judgment when at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Friend, we should long for that day. 
while we don't do so in a way that is merciless, while we long for the conversion of souls, and our principal desire is for God to be exalted in every mouth, all of his enemies stopped. We ought to pray and long for that. As we leave this text, the first point of examination for us is, and of course, how do we see ourselves in light of this contrast between wicked and the psalmist? Is it your glory or is it God's that you aim most at? And I can't answer that for you and no one else can. And appearances mean nothing as long as it's with man's judgment. Before God, how do you answer that question? But the second point of examination, friend, is do you have a like grief at wickedness? The psalmist pours out when his earnest cries that God would stop the tides of iniquity here. As he describes himself in Psalm 119, rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Friend, it's one thing to be patient under an ungodly society. It's one thing like righteous lot to vex one's souls while in Sodom. But it's so very important for us to remember that we should never cease to be grieved at the wickedness we see. And so like the psalmist in Psalm 10, friend, do we grieve over what we see? Does this lead us to go to God in earnest prayer, pleading that he would work? Or are we, as it were, a disinterested bystander? Somebody who can simply kind of shake their heads at what's going on, say it's a shame, carry on with our day. Friend, these things ought to grieve us, and certainly the psalmist gives us an example in that regard as well. But thirdly, the point of examination as well that comes from this text is, friend, do we have solidarity of heart with the oppressed of God's people? Notice, friend, in this 10th Psalm that the psalmist does not describe at all his own oppression. I think that's perhaps one of the most striking elements of this psalm. The psalmist could not be described as being either a widow or an orphan. But yet he goes to God on their behalf. Friend, here you have again another example, very much like that of Psalm 119. I am companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. Can we be a disinterested bystander, friend, when our brothers and sisters in Christ are under the rod, are afflicted and especially at the hands of the enemies of God? Or do we, like the psalmist in Psalm 10, truly, with feeling of heart, join ourselves in their suffering? The exhortation from this psalm, friend, is, as I've said to you already, it, it should norm how you and I think about God's providences. His providences past, present, and future. The wicked see God aloof, his judgments far removed. The wickedness of the, the, his wickedness well established and secured. The godly, on the other hand, look at providence and they see God's hand at work. Even in real time, friend, when they see the wicked thwarted, it's God's hand of judgment. And when they look at the word of God and they see his promises that he will stand and one day vindicate his church, they take that as fact. 
And friend, they interpret providence according to all of these things. This ought to norm our meditation. But the second thing is, friend, it also should lead us to desire God's exaltation over all things. And friend, it should also lead us to pray earnestly for the annihilation of wicked regimes. It is a Christian duty, according to the 10th Psalm, for us to pray that the nations would know that they are but of the earth. At the end of the 9th Psalm, that they are but men. Friend, it's not an easy thing. And we should take no delight in destruction for its own sake. But this 10th Psalm shows us that believers certainly are to pray for the annihilation of wicked regimes like, friend, what you and I know all too well in the Western Hemisphere. We ought to be actively praying for their destruction, either through repentance, which we crave most of all, or through God's hand of chastisement. Friend, if we do so, if we heed the psalm aright, then you and I will live as it were fixed upon the God who is now at work and who will one day subdue all of his enemies, one day bring his people into a feast of fat things, remove from them the covering of shame and of death as he triumphs over all of the church's enemies in his own. May the Lord lead us to live in such a way as we leave the psalm tonight. Amen.